Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're here to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. We look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues, and gut health, cancers, lung, and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts in our series on nature, communities, environment, and sustainability. And today's episode, we're going to dig into carbon footprints, what they are, how they impact our health and environment, and how you can reduce yours. Now, carbon footprints involve the depletion of resources. Large carbon footprints deplete resources on large and small scales, all the way from a country's deforestation activities to one's home's increased use of AC. The more those with large carbon footprints use resources, then the more greenhouse gases increase and spur and exacerbate further climate change. This is a measure that can help us look at and evaluate what we're doing as it relates to the actions of an individual, a family, an event, an organization, and of course, an entire nation. And our guest today to help us explore and understand this from an environmental perspective is Shaila Raghav. Shaila is with the Conservation International Organization. Conservation International's work involves protecting nature for climate. And I love that they say that we need nature. Nature is life. Every breath you take, every drop you drink, every bite you eat, it all comes from nature. And Conservation International's CEO, Dr. Sanjavan says, not only is protecting nature vital to the health of the planet, it could be crucial to preventing further pandemics. He says that investment in preventing the destruction of nature is also an investment in keeping us healthy. And of course, that's near and dear to our hearts here at Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, because that is our purpose, that's our focus, that's what we're all about. Shyla is Conservation International's leader of their global climate strategy. Shyla and her interdisciplinary global team engage with key partners to amplify Conservation International's successful climate change strategies, which demonstrate that ecosystem-based mitigation and adaptation offer tremendous opportunities for meeting the world's climate challenges. Prior to joining Conservation International, Shyla worked on multiple adaptation projects addressing water scarcity and food security with organizations such as the Adaptation Fund, the Caribbean Community Climate Change Center, and with United Nations organizations in their country-specific 
work with offices in Bangkok. Her work has been instrumental in developing tools to help developing countries adapt to climate change. Shyla holds a master's in environmental management from Yale University and a BS from UC in Irvine. Welcome, Shyla. We're so glad you could join us today. Thank you so much for having me. Shyla, Conservation International, of course, is one of the top global organizations working on conservation, climate change, and environmental protection. Can you tell us about why and how you all got started and what makes Conservation International different? What is your particular niche and what sets your work apart from some of the other organizations on our global stage that are doing this work? Well, thank you for that question. Conservation International was founded a little more than 30 years ago, really built on the simple premise that uh, people need nature to thrive. That as a society, I think we can all see that and we can all feel that on a very personal level. We're healthier, we're better off when our air is clean, when our water is clean. We've also seen now that nature is also so closely connected to um, the, the, the rise and spread of diseases. And so our entire organization is really just built on that simple fact that people need nature to thrive. And I'm based in Washington, D.C., but really have the privilege of being able to work with colleagues from all around the world. We have a presence in 30 countries ranging from Brazil to Colombia, South Africa, Kenya, Indonesia, and, and many more. And I really think what sets us apart is that we work through partnership. We work on local approaches. The heads of our country programs are, are for the most part, locals. They're from that country. They understand the local context. They understand the needs of communities. And that really allows us to develop solutions that will be more effective in the long run. And my role specifically is to draw attention to the fact that nature is not only important for um, our, our physical human health well-being, but also important for the health of the planet and for climate change. A third or more of the solution to climate change comes from nature. So my job is all about raising awareness about this fact and more importantly, trying to organize partners and decision makers around making that potential a reality. So Conservation International focuses on facilitating or allowing nature to heal itself. Exactly, exactly. I love that. Shyla, today as we unpack the topic and issues surrounding and impacting carbon footprints, I'd like to begin by discussing definitions or exactly what do we mean by carbon footprints as it is a term that I think many ordinary people see and hear today a lot. And of course, Conservation International has this really cool carbon footprint calculator on your website. Also, as I talk to people, I'm not sure there's a complete or even a generalized understanding by ordinary people in their everyday lives of what this means. And of course, that's what Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio is all about. Outward facing, trying to help ordinary people in their everyday lives understand these environmental issues. So can you talk about those definitions from that perspective? Absolutely. So in our daily lives, we'll go, we'll make a number of decisions about what we buy, how we 
get from point A to point B? How do you get to work? How do you commute? Um, what are the, the different brands or companies that you support that you want to, to, to buy products from? Um, but very, um, I think there's also very little information about you know, how can you make a better decision about products and your lifestyle to lower your footprint or to reduce the impact that you that we're having on the planet. So I think that that this whole concept of a footprint can be a really effective education tool, but also a tool to inform your own decisions and behavior. So what a, the the whole concept of a footprint is that it, it looks at the life cycle of a product, or it looks at a behavior, and it helps us to understand how that is rooted in the use of natural resources. So our overall ecological footprint relates to um, the, the, the share of natural resources that activity or product or behavior requires to not only produce, but also maybe get it to the supermarket or get it to your table or get it to your home. The other example could be a t-shirt that you buy at the store. So for, for understanding the footprint of that t-shirt, you'd need to think about how much land is needed to grow the cotton, how much water is needed to sustain that crop, the energy that would be needed to pick and process that cotton, turn it into a t-shirt, and then transport it to the store where you would go and buy it. And so you can calculate a footprint on different levels and scales. You can calculate it at an individual product level, or you can calculate it for the entire fashion industry. You can calculate it for a country, for a particular sector, but it's just really an important tool that can be used for your own decision-making. Now, a subset of your ecological footprint would be your carbon footprint. Look at the two, carbon footprint and ecological footprint. We see out there in the general public carbon footprint used more often than ecological footprint. So can you explain the difference in, and why do most people know more about carbon than ecological? Yeah, so the ecological footprint is a broader term. I would say it's almost like the umbrella. So that would refer to how big a settlement is, how big is your home. The carbon footprint will just look at the, the, the pieces of that ecological footprint for which there are there's a carbon emission associated. So we know that the, the cause of climate change predominantly is the emissions of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide. So when you look at this broader framework of an ecological footprint, you can you can parse out the components that are related to energy and that would comprise your carbon footprint. Um, and would encourage anyone to visit conservation.org slash calculator so you can actually calculate your own carbon footprint. Thank you so much, Shyla. We'll be back to continue this conversation on the other side of the break. We've been with Shyla Raghav with Conservation International. We'll be right back. We want to give a shout out to our sponsors now. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festival, and interactive experiences. For EarthX, Earth Day is every day. Join the movement, keep in touch, and add to the conversation at EarthX League. Go to their website, earthx.org, to register and to start talking. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the green, healthy, and sustainable living authority that we need right now. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods, grocers, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, as well as online at nadallas.com. Check them out for healthy immune system tips to help defend yourself 
against the coronavirus. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're back with today's segment on carbon footprints, what are they, how they impact our health and environment, and how you can reduce yours. And we're here with Shyla Raghav from Conservation International. Thank you so much again, Shyla, for joining us. And thank you for giving us that description and information on comparing and contrasting the definitions of carbon footprints and ecological footprints. And I liked that you really set it out for us why we hear and use carbon footprints more, and that is that they are more measurable. Shyla, this, of course, brings us back, though, to climate change. The way we approach climate change and climate action has evolved, of course, over the last decade a lot. Can you tell us more about this change, where we were, where we are now, and where we go post-COVID-19? Well, thank you for that question. I think that um, prior to COVID-19, we are really looking at 2020 to be a turning point on climate. And the reason for that is that if you look at the, the latest science on climate change, we know that globally, we have to be at net zero emissions of greenhouse gases by 2050. That means that, that we can't be emitting any more CO2, carbon dioxide. Um, we can't be emitting any more than can be reabsorbed by our planet. And that also implies that in 2020, uh, we need to have experienced a global peak in emissions to rapidly be declining towards net zero by 2050. Now, so because of that, we were hoping that there would be a lot of po political momentum towards actually achieving that goal. And so I think that, that COVID-19 has, has affected that trajectory significantly. But at the same time, I do think that COVID-19 is an opportunity for us to be smarter about economic recovery, that the recovery funds can be put towards putting people back to work in green jobs, in creating a, a, a strong, thriving manufacturing industry that develops materials for renewable energy, for batteries, and we've also seen so much positive change around pollution. We've seen blue, clear skies in places where it normally would be very smoggy and polluted. So I hope that these impacts can inspire us to make sure that those changes are not just temporary, but rather turn ourselves to making the more systemic, longer-term shifts that are going to be needed to address climate change. Yes, generally, we are seeing and hearing that COVID-19 is really contracting our economy. So then the logical assumption is, is that our usage of natural resources is contracting. And of course, I know there's probably no metrics about that at this point, but what is your speculation on how COVID-19 is impacting our footprint, both ecological and carbon? So I do think that COVID-19 is having a short-term benefit, but the problem is that it's very temporary. And it's also not um, a, a significant change relative to what's needed, simply because what we need is those, those systemic transformations rather than just relying on small individual behaviors. For example, we need um, large-scale deployment of renewable energy so that consumers like you and I can choose 
a renewable source of electricity, that we can choose affordable electric cars. Those are changes that need to come from the top down, that the companies need to make those products available to us. So, so I think fundamentally, um, there really is an opportunity for us to pivot and think more about the new world that we're trying to build and making those decisions to enable that future rather than it just being a temporary impact. Exactly, because we don't know what good things from the standpoint of the environment and our footprint, we don't know what good things that are happening as a result of COVID-19 are going to stick. I think one of the things that we do see that helps to inform some of the better air quality is less people driving, more people working from home. So hopefully maybe some of that can stick also. Absolutely. And the other thing, so I work a lot with electric vehicles, and then we have seen over the last 10 years, we are seeing those come down substantially. There's Conservation International focuses on nature-based solutions in order to scale climate change. Can you give our audience some examples of some of these nature-based solutions that you all are currently working on? Can you tell us about perhaps some projects that you all have on the ground or in the process of that are actually demonstrating this and how successful it can be? Yeah, one of our one of my favorite projects is in Brazil, and it, it's uh, in partnership with uh, a number of indigenous communities um, that have revived a traditional technique of seed dispersal called muvuca, which is a Portuguese word, and it, it basically means a, it's a party, it's a gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what will happen is that the communities will gather seeds from, from their land, um, they'll mix it up, they'll shake it up like they're having a party, and then they'll just they'll disperse them. Um, and it allows for a really biodiverse, rich and ecosystem and allows for really uh, thriving regeneration of that land. And we're currently undertaking the largest tropical uh, restoration project in the world in Brazil in the Xingu watershed. That's probably one of my favorite examples because it combines a traditional technology uh, and an important natural climate solution together with communities. So how is the carbon footprint or ecological footprint in developing communities and developing nations different than here in the U.S.? And what causes these differences? And what have you learned from that work that can be dispersed globally to impact climate change? Yeah, so per capita emissions or a per capita carbon footprint is an important concept to know here because you look at the emissions of an entire country and then you divide it by its population. And you can imagine that countries like China and India with very high populations will have lower per capita emissions or even countries in Africa, for example, or Pacific Island nations that have a very small footprint and also small populations. But if you if you look at the average American versus an average Indian, um, it's really an order of magnitude difference between the, the uh, those footprints. And the reason for that is because um, of the, the dominant industrial sector that we have, the manufacturing, um, the, the predominance of, of motor vehicles for each family or sometimes for multiple individuals within a family, and also consumption patterns. Um, the amount of, of products that we're consuming have an inherent footprint. Um, and then, of course, access to heating and cooling, the amount of electricity and energy that we're using, the efficiency of that energy or, or electricity. Um, and so you can imagine why um, certain countries um, feel that the United States really has a larger share 
of, of, of work and financing to put into solving these global problems because of that relative responsibility. It seems as though we're seeing that the more developed a country or a nation is, the larger is their utilization of resources and the larger is their footprint. That's correct. So hopefully with the number of developing nations coming on or rising, one of two things are going to happen. <laughs> Either they're going to benefit and take the lessons learned and do it better and be intentional about their footprints, or they're going to be just like us and perhaps be worse. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's definitely a fear that if that if every person lived like an American, we'd need, you know, multiple Earths. We just, it's simply not possible. And so, you know, that that is really just, it's, it's, it's something that we need to work very hard to prevent just simply because it's going to exacerbate inequality because there just aren't enough resources to go around. So I think there needs to be a combination of those in industrialized countries to reduce their footprints, to be more sustainable, to recognize the wasteful practices that, that can be eliminated. I think that might be a benefit of COVID. So it's also important for developed countries to support developing countries with new technologies and to be able to help them to come along faster. So you've got developed and industrialized nations, but what about the more enlightened ones like Sweden? Are we seeing them be intentional and bring about measurable economies or measurable reductions in carbon footprint or not? Yeah, so globally, it's it's really a mixed bag there. And, and sometimes there's also a lag in data. So we don't have real-time emissions data, um, but so we can just use proxies and speculate. But um, Scandinavian countries and countries in Europe are, are very much ahead of the curve in recognizing, in making those upfront investments in renewable energy, making uh, providing subsidies for clean technology. All of these have really an important role to play. Great. It's good to know that there is hope. Thank you so much, Shiloh. You have been so informative, and we will definitely have you back. And we are actually going to be talking about deforestation in next week's show. Thank you so much. This has been Shiloh Raghav with Conservation International. We'll be right back on the other side of the break to look at the same subject from a healthy living lifestyle perspective. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Healthy Planet Radio. Today's segment is about nature, communities, environment, and sustainability. And today we are drilling down on the topic of carbon footprints, what they are, how they impact our health and environment, and how you can reduce yours. And here with us on this segment of the program, we've got an expert who's going to help us with the health and lifestyle perspective. What is there good about carbon footprints? On the last segment, we talked about carbon footprints and ecological footprints, but it was mostly negative and how far we have to go. So what's good about it, I think, is knowing it and knowing how much carbon emissions we're generating. And this can actually enable us or empower us in reducing waste, which reduces cost, which improves the bottom line for both businesses and individuals. A carbon footprint helps to identify the waste or the inefficiencies we have in terms of energy and raw materials and our consumption. The average carbon footprint for a person in the United States is 16 tons, which is one of the highest rates in the world. 
The good news, though, is that there is a practical standard that we can use to measure whether or not we're living sustainably. It's simple. It's three tons of carbon dioxide emissions per person per year. Right now, the global average is 4.5 tons per year. And so here today, to help us unpack this from the health and lifestyle perspective, is Dr. Maria Saxton. Maria is a recent PhD graduate. She received her PhD in environmental design and planning from Virginia Tech University. Her dissertation explored the ecological footprint of tiny home downsizers, finding how tiny homes are one way to live a more environmentally friendly lifestyle. Maria is currently an environmental planner and housing specialist at Hill Studio, an architectural firm in Roanoke, Virginia, and she serves on the board of directors of the Tiny Home Industry Association. Welcome, Maria. We're so glad you could join us to explore this subject today, and thank you for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be speaking with you. Maria, in our last segment, we did talk a lot about and define carbon footprints and ecological footprints. So I'd like to start off with you, though, in this segment by telling us more about why and how these footprints impact our human health. And then tell us about some easy lifestyle changes that people can make to reduce their footprint. Absolutely. So first, a quick recap from what Shyla shared with us earlier. An ecological footprint is one way to measure your environmental impact, and it gives you a comprehensive overview of the areas in your life that are most impactful. So it is a bit different from a carbon footprint, and it calculates the demand of human behaviors on our planet's ecosystem. So there are five main footprint components. There's food, housing, transportation, goods, and services. And in each of these components, there are inputs that are used to calculate your spatial footprint. One issue, however, is that there are multiple footprint calculators, and they all have slightly different, different inputs that they use for their calculations themselves. So for my research, I had to choose which calculator was the most comprehensive and most appropriate for the population that I was studying. So after an in-depth review of the seven most popular calculators, I discovered that the Global Footprint Network's calculator covered the largest amount of materials or inputs and followed a strict set of standards for these types of calculators. So in terms of inputs, I'll talk a little bit about what this specific calculator considers. First, it looks at the size of your home, what your home is built with, what type of home it is, so a single detached home compared to a condominium, how many people you live with, how energy efficient it is, and if you use any renewable energy. For food, it looks at the amount of animal-based products that you consume and what food you buy. Is it local? Is it packaged responsibly? Do you grow it yourself? And then for transportation, it asks how much you travel via car, via bus, train, airplane, and also how fuel efficient your car is, how often you carpool, and how often you use public transportation. And then lastly, for goods and services, it looks in depth at what you buy, looking at things like furniture, electronics, clothing, books, et cetera. And then, of course, how much trash you generate and how much you recycle. Well, that's a lot of input there. Approximately how long would you say it would take a person to actually put this information in and come out with what their footprint is? Well, what's really great about the Global Footprint Network 
calculator is that it is online. They have a really, really easy to follow interface. Um, you go online, you put in your email address, and then I would say it probably takes you about 10 minutes to answer the prompt questions it gives you, and then it provides you with information about your footprint and what land types are most, most impacted by your lifestyle. And it's a really great resource. It gives you some information on how you can reduce your ecological footprint. So I highly recommend um, checking out their website and also exploring the other footprint calculators that are out there as well. Now, that one from the Global Footprint Network, that is an ecological footprint, right? Yes, it is. And I know that our previous guest from the Conservation International Organization, on their website, they have a carbon footprint calculator. So both of these are extremely good resources for people to really get a sense of the impact that they and their lifestyle are having on the earth. And I, for one, would like to see these footprint calculators more widely used. I think they can really create some sensitivity. So Maria, you've conducted in-depth research about the lifestyle change of going tiny in order to reduce our carbon and ecological footprint. Please tell us about your findings, your learnings, and conclusions, and tell us what perhaps was the most surprising or unexpected thing that you found, both behaviorally and environmentally, in your research. Absolutely. So the primary finding was that, on average, ecological footprints were reduced by 45%, so almost half, after living in a tiny home for over a year. I was also surprised at how and why footprints were reduced. So every single input in each footprint component that we looked at was reduced when you looked at averages across the study population. A few examples of the most surprising to me personally, one, folks consumed less animal-based food products. In most cases, this was due to smaller fridges for perishable food items. They also grew more of the food themselves, often because they had more land and they had more space for a garden. Also, they wanted to spend more time outdoors. Who wants to be cooped up in a tiny home all day? <laughs> and a garden is a great excuse to do that. Another one that really, really surprised me was um, an improved fuel economy of the cars that they drove. I actually thought that... Um, you know, there, were, there would be a handful of study participants who had to buy less fuel-efficient cars, you know, trucks to, to tow their tiny home. And so it was really promising to see that on average, the fuel economy was actually better for tiny home downsizers. And then lastly, on average, these tiny home downsizers traveled by airplane less in a given year. And when you're looking at your ecological footprint, air travel is the number one most impactful thing. So that was really, really great to discover. I also hear you saying when you were itemizing for us those various areas that tiny home dwellers tend to be what we call greenies, just across the bat, significantly more environmentally conscious. When you talked about the cars they drove, that they were primarily plant-based, those kinds of things. So that's very interesting to note. Maria, one last question before we go to break, and that is in regards to human health, and what are the major benefits that you noted in your study, and why, and why is it important? And you can just start us there, as I said, we're not going to have time for you to completely answer that before we have to go to break. Sure. So most of the data that I collected was related to somebody's environmental impact. 
But I did learn some really interesting things that could benefit human health. So like I mentioned earlier, on average, these folks grew more of their own food. I also know that a lot of the study participants were major naturalists and they consumed very healthy diets. And this wasn't necessarily because they downsized to a tiny home, but I do think that it gave them more financial means to invest in healthier foods and even more time to learn about their health and learn about their wellness. Another majorly impactful benefit I saw was simply the fact that when you live in such a small space, especially if you live with others, you're essentially forced to spend more time outside, so more time hiking, gardening, biking, what have you. And we all know that being active and outdoors is very beneficial to your physical and mental health. We will continue this after the break. We're going to go to break now. And after we will be back with Dr. Maria Saxton talking about the health and lifestyle impacts of reducing that carbon footprint. Thank you, Maria. We'll be right back. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festival, and interactive experiences. For EarthX, Earth Day is every day. So join the movement, keep in touch, and add to the conversation at EarthX Lead. Go to their website, earthx.org, to register and to start talking with EarthX Lead. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green and Healthy Living Authority that we need right now. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all whole food markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, as well as online at nadallas.com. Check them out for healthy immune system tips to help defend yourself against the coronavirus. Thank you, sponsors. Healthy Planet Radio. We are back with Dr. Maria Saxton, and we're talking about carbon footprints, what they are, how they impact our health and environment, and how you can reduce yours. Thank you again for being with us, Maria. We really appreciate your time, and it's really interesting to hear a lot more about the research that you did for your doctorate dissertation. I think it goes a long way, and hopefully industry will use a lot of your findings. I noted that you are on the board of directors of the Tiny House Industry Association. As an aside though, how are you seeing that industry take advantage of a lot of the environmental benefits that their product and service can make? Well, I think that a lot of people have been able to use this research and advocate for policy on behalf of of tiny homes. There are a lot of towns and cities and jurisdictions who are really looking at their housing stock, their housing inventory, and seeing in what ways they can adopt their housing to be more environmentally conscious and have a lower environmental impact. So a lot of people have been able to use these findings to provide some substantial evidence, you know, some quantitative evidence that tells us why tiny homes are one solution to sustainable housing. And I tell you, there is a lot of hardcore interest in them. As I mentioned, one of our sponsors is EarthX, and they have this big expo, the world's largest Earth Day expo every year. 
And I know the first year they had about three tiny homes, and those are the longest lines in the whole park. And now they're up to, I think the last time they had it, which was 2018, they had about seven or eight tiny homes. And again, the lines just snaked all through the park with people wanting to tour them and see them. So there's a large interest there. As well, here in North Texas, we have about, it may be more, but we have, I think, at least three tiny home developments, so to speak. So they are growing in terms of being on the top of people's minds and the interest. And I think that's a good thing, given the large impact that they can make on our footprint. So before the break, though, you were telling us about the major health benefits that you noted in your study for folks going to tiny home living. Can you tell us about that? But also, if you can address any financial and perhaps mental, emotional, and physical benefits that you may have noted or that you saw indicated as relates to people going small and reducing their footprints? Yes, this is a great question. So while I didn't specifically collect data on these types of benefits, since it wasn't in the specific scope of my study, I can certainly speak anecdotally about some of these benefits based on the many conversations I had with tiny home dwellers. So affordability, first off, unsurprisingly, was a huge plus for many. In fact, this is the number one reason that participants in my study downsized to their tiny homes. It was much more important than living a sustainable lifestyle. I didn't ask the participants the cost of their homes or anything number related, but many of them shared that they were able to purchase their homes outright and they aren't currently stuck in a 20-year mortgage like they may have been previously. And now they have the financial means to save money for retirement or for their kids' college education or even for travel. A lot of participants refer to the fact that the average person spends the bulk of their time away from their homes to pay for a roof over their heads. And then they spend their free time maintaining and upkeeping their houses. Almost everybody I interviewed shared that now their upkeep is so minimal and it takes only about 20, 30 minutes each weekend to clean their tiny home. So now they have a lot more free time to spend with family, to go outside, to pursue hobbies that they might not have otherwise had time for. And this certainly can lend itself to stronger mental health. So one of my uh, the questions that I asked these study participants was, tell me why you downsized. What were the top three reasons? The first was, like I mentioned earlier, it was the financial side of things. But second, it was an urge to be able to be mobile, to be able to be resilient and adaptable to things like job change or natural disasters or things like what we're experiencing now with COVID-19. So it certainly was very important. Um, and in terms of, of looking at the tiny homes themselves, about 77% of the tiny homes in the study were mobile or at least semi-mobile, meaning that they could be transferred if absolutely necessary. And then only a handful of them were permanently fixed on foundations. That's interesting. Now, Maria, in your research, you visited many, many tiny home communities. So tell me, what are the differences that you saw or that you noted in terms of the sense of community in your tiny home communities as it's compared to your traditional tract home or subdivision communities? I would 
would definitely say that the tiny home community has a very strong sense of community, whether it's in the physical communities themselves or the virtual online community. So in person, certainly there are unique, strong communities of like-minded individuals and families who share mutual interests. If you're living tiny, likely you have very similar values to someone else, like your neighbor who's living tiny. And as compared to a subdivision, for instance, you may not share the same types of interests or values nearly as much. The physical communities also share amenities like community gardens, bikes, even cars. I visited two that had weekly community dinners where they switched off who did the cooking, the cleaning. And it was really great to see how well they connected to each other. And I definitely learned that the online community is uniquely strong as well. Maybe it's because a lot of People who live tiny work remotely, but boy, do they know how to keep a conversation going <laughs> online and share resources with one another. There's a lot of active Facebook groups, online forums, et cetera, and a lot of people asking questions about their build or their tiny living journey and a lot of other sharing about their experiences. Of course, with any type of things online these days, there's always some bantering and bickering, but for the most part, I really see that most people in the virtual tiny home community really caring about the greater good and helping others. And I think especially now more than ever, we're realizing how valuable virtual connection can be. So this is very powerful in my opinion. So it seems as though you have seen, and it makes sense to me as well, that there really is a stronger sense of community in the tiny home communities for at the very basic level, they have more common interest among them. Now, what would you say, Maria, though, are perhaps the biggest challenges to going to tiny living or tiny home communities? What are the biggest challenges that are faced by those communities or the biggest challenges that one faces in trying to go to the tiny living? This is a great question because while my study's findings primarily could be used as an argument for tiny home living, it also uncovered some unintended consequences of tiny home living that I personally think is really important to talk about so that those who may be considering these homes don't necessarily think, you know, it's all sunshine and daisies. So the challenges that I uncovered were definitely related to somebody's environmental impact. So they're not by any means representative of every single challenge you might encounter, but definitely worth considering. So one major issue I found is that people have a different difficult time recycling while living in tiny homes. There were a handful of people who shared that they can't recycle at all or can only recycle minimally. And this is an issue for a number of reasons, but largely because some tiny homes lack storage. And as most of us know, you need a decent amount of storage to store recyclables like glass and cardboard. Another reason not recycling is a challenge is that many folks who downsize to tiny homes end up needing to move to rural locations to live legally. And unfortunately, many rural municipalities do not offer curbside recycling services. Another issue that came up quite a bit was that some people ate out more often, which for some is great. You know, you're supporting the economy and hopefully local businesses, but strictly through the lens of your environmental impact, eating out is typically less sustainable than cooking your own food. In about 90% of these cases, these individuals ate out more often because they had a small kitchen, they had limited storage space for perishable food items, bulk foods, even kitchenware, 
And if you're considering downsizing, but you love cooking, one way you can mitigate this could be by designing your kitchen in a way that allows it to function the same as a full-size kitchen. I wanted to ask, and you touched upon something briefly, and that was legalities, or maybe it's municipal code or what have you. And we only have just about a minute to go, but can you touch upon that? Is that a major challenge for tiny homes? And is it in most localities, all localities, or does it differ where maybe they have to have a building permit or something like that in order to situate one? It certainly is a challenge um, all across the United States. Every day, though, we're seeing more advances in terms of policy that allows for tiny homes, which has been really promising. Well, thank you so much, Maria. We really appreciate your information, and you've done some really in-depth and great research here. I hope that the findings of your research are taken to heart and that they can help inform moving ahead with this entire tiny home uh, industry. And something that we can talk about at a later date, the next time you come to visit us, is perhaps the in-betweens. People may not be ready to go to tiny home yet, but they don't have to do the Mac Mansion, and maybe they can use a lot of your learnings and findings from the tiny home living study to help them inform them in terms of reducing their, quote, housing footprint. So we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for listening, listeners, to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Thank you, and join us again next week as we talk more about carbon footprints and we'll talk about deforestation. Thank you, listeners.